Welcome, welcome, geeks and nerds, girls and boys, to a brand new edition of Geek to Me Radio, episode 226. Today we're joined by cartoonist and editor Glenn Head talking about Chartwell Manor, his new graphic novel. We'll then talk with composer Stephanie Economou about composing the score for Jupiter's Legacy. All that and more, stand by. We're talking TV, comics and movies, and video games. be finding us for the very first time. Welcome to you. I'm James Enstall, the host of geek to me Radio. For those longtime listeners, welcome back. Always glad to have you listening. And we want to make sure that you also know that we do a live weekly show in addition to this online show. You can find that if you're in the greater St. Louis area on the big 550 KTRS, you can stream the show live anywhere Sundays at 10 p.m. Eastern and 7 p.m. Pacific. And you can stream that at ktrs.com slash stream. You can listen from anywhere. We also stream live on YouTube. We stream live on twitch.tv and on Facebook as well. Make sure you're following us on those platforms at geek to me Radio. We have two great guests that we're going to get into this week, so let's dive in. Right now we're talking with cartoonist and comic editor Glenn Head. He's got a brand new graphic novel, Chartwell Manor, coming out on May 25th that we want to make sure we discuss. Glenn, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Man. Of course. Glad to have you. Uh, I, I was reading the description the publicist sent me over, and it, it's it's fascinating because you, when you think of graphic novel, you think of something dark. You might think of something by Alan Moore or something like The Watchmen or something like that. But this is bi- autobiographical, and it it's it's deep. It's It's all about... Uh, detailing your life at boarding school run by a serial abuser of young boys. It doesn't get much uh, more real than that. Talk a little bit about how you decided to put this out in graphic novel form. Well, I guess I'd say that the answer to that is that it was by trial and error. I have been uh, looking into this material and considering delving into it since the time I was actually at this boarding school, which was uh, for a couple of years in the early 70s, from 1971 to 1973. Um, As soon as I was there, I was really struck by the gothic nature of this, almost feeling as if I was in some sort of demented fairy tale land of a place, because I grew up in New Jersey, and the boarding school itself was in New Jersey, too, in a town called Mendham. But it had this British... Oliver Twist kind of feel to it that was very alien and, as I say, very gothic. The the place really felt like something from an earlier era, maybe even an earlier century. 
and I was very struck by that. I was, I was as a kid really into comics and horror movies and it, it really felt like there might be vampires or werewolves right around the corner being at this place. <laughs> and it was also at a time where, you know, I just turned 13 and, uh, I was away from my parents for the first time. So it was a, a very shocking and very strong atmospheric kind of place to be in. So the material itself really presented itself very early on as being very dramatic and kind of uh, almost a horror comic in its way. Uh, even to my young mind when I was there at the age of 13, it, it took some time years later before I could even consider processing it and using it as material, uh, I began to look into that and made various attempts and I couldn't quite get a handle on it. And I didn't really realize that one of the reasons was it was just too big a subject and I hadn't worked with a subject of this size yet. So I needed to be able to come to grips with that. And I eventually realized that uh, this is my second graphic novel. The first one I did was one called Chicago, which was about being broke and homeless and crazy in Chicago in the late 70s and meeting some of my heroes like Robert Crumb and Skip Williamson and going through that very personal tale And working on that kind of canvas made me realize that that was really the approach needed for a tale like this. And, you know, what you can get with a graphic novel, you can you can work out a lot of time sequencing, which is much harder to do with, say, the kind of comic that I grew up doing, Mm -hmm. which was, say, like a 25 or 32 page book. It just doesn't quite wash in the same way to work out a lot of different scenes from one's entire life. And as soon as I delved into this and began working on it, I realized that by doing all these different chapters, which is what I did, the first chapter takes place in this boarding school. It's the longest chapter, but the rest of the book is actually a lot longer and it goes into detail about how that experience affected me, which is what really interested me so anyway that was the 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 process of how all of this came together it it took a while before it presented itself and once it did i realized this was the right way to to work with it and does the graphic novel itself just cover your time there or does it kind of again if this is a spoiler maybe you can't say but does it kind of show the aftermath like did this uh the person who ran it get their comeuppance or is it just cover your time there and kind of you getting out no, it it uh, it definitely shows his comeuppance in more ways than one. Um, yeah, I mean, as I say, there are there are several chapters to it. There are five of them, and the first one is my time at this boarding school, what it was like to be there, what it was like to be with the other kids, uh, and have those friendships and sort of act out here and there, and be on the receiving end of corporal punishment and abuse, and being at that young stage in life and not being able to process any of that. It was very important to me to capture, you know, the young teenage years of Glenn, my character, and just going through these things and having them happen, but not really being able to, you know, process them because you don't 
as a as a young teenager you're just in the middle of living and moving forward and you process them later the later chapters of the book uh uh the second third fourth and fifth are really all about that they are about the aftermath of what that processing is like so yeah it's it's see my idea of of the memoir the personal tale and what it's really about it can be the inciting incidents of what happened to really affect a person but what really interests me is the aftermath of it and how that life is lived as a result yeah of those effects and that is essentially what the book is really about it's not truly about this monster pedophile although it is about him and as i say it does delve into his comeuppance it does show what became of him uh sort of running on parallel tracks to my own life although i had no further contact with him fortunately enough once i got out of the school at 15 but it does show intentionally how our behavior or sexuality follows us around the things that we did the things that maybe we shouldn't have done they don't just go to sleep they follow us and that's one of the things i was i was showing that went on here yeah and this uh, there's there's so many countless tales of abuse like this that happen sadly throughout the the uh, the country the world uh and you would think well that couldn't happen here in america and then we get tales like this is this does the graphic novel pretty much uh, as far as again I don't want to spoil anything for people who you know are going haven't read it yet or getting ready to read it and want to buy it and check it out but does it, it was this detailed in the news at all is it pretty much his comeuppance a kind of uh, follow what actually happened or are there are there some creative liberties taken uh, creative liberties um, I try not to do too much of that and I don't really need to because the story is crazy and I think exciting and off the charts enough that I did not have to invent anything. <laughs> so um, this guy as a character is almost a underground comics parody of what you might think of as a headmaster. Wow. You know, uh, this guy is like verbose, charismatic, really florid in his speech patterns, which I was able to remember perfectly. Uh, a, a true larger than life character. Mm. And I really wanted to capture him in all his demented glory. And I think I have, I definitely didn't need to invent anything with this guy. And I didn't need to invent anything about the eras either, which were, you know, also very strong. I mean, the seventies was a really interesting time for what was going on with a lot of things culturally, but what the seventies really lacked collectively was a vocabulary to deal with pedophiles mm. or abuse. You see, it didn't even exist in a sort of collective consciousness way that people understood what abuse was during that time. So one thing that I'm really trying to put across too is what it feels like to be an abuse survivor and not have a way of expressing that or exposing it because it couldn't be, it couldn't be talked about. So, but in terms of taking any creative liberties, I, I really would avoid that with a memoir. The, the main thing that you can allow yourself to do is you can compress things. You can have things happen at slightly different times, or you can 
elide certain things and not even go into them because, you know, you're basically having to tell your story in comics. And that means that a lot of things are going to be going on between the panels. Yeah, sure. But what's great with a graphic novel is that a lot can go on in the panels because you have a lot of panels to work with. Yeah. And is this, did you, I, I hate to sound trite, but it, did, did having this finally done, this project done, did it give you any healing or closure, if that even is something that can be had for the experience you survived? We'll pause right there, take our first commercial break, come back and chat more with Glenn Head. Please stand by. This is Brian O'Halloran. You might know this voice from such great films as Clerks, Mallrats, Dogma, Chasing Amy, the new Jay and Silent Bob reboot. And you're listening to Geek to Me Radio. Welcome back to Geek to Me Radio. Want to make sure we talk about our official movie sponsor, Marcus Theaters, Marcus Theaters and Movie Tavern. You can go to the website, MarcusTheaters.com, to learn more about them, where they're located, which one's closest to you, what movies are out, what's playing. Uh, now that the pandemic is starting to break, we're seeing things open back up. Theaters are someplace you need to get out and support because we miss them so badly during the midst of the pandemic, not being able to go out and see a theater. A lot of theaters closed down. Luckily, Marcus Theaters Movie Tavern are going strong. They just finished the renovations here in the greater St. Louis area at the Mid-Rivers Mall location. Thanks again to Brett Hoffman and to Kevin and to Brian for having us out there. Brought the Geeks Me Radio crew out to see Wrath of Man a few weeks ago. Uh, You can rent a private theater MarcusTheaters.com. You can check out the one closest to you that's doing it. $99 through May 26th. So get out and do that. You get 19 of your friends. Go out, see your movie in your very own theater. Kick back on the comfy dream loungers. Uh, order some concessions. Get some popcorn, soda, things like that. And just have a great time with some friends at the movie. Get back out and enjoy them because these are the things we missed when we were gone. We should appreciate them now that we have them back. And there's no greater appreciation than seeing a movie in the perfect surroundings with really awesome concessions and Marcus Theaters and Movie Tavern do just that. Check out the website MarcusTheaters.com to book your tickets. Check out the private cinema events. Find movies that are playing and go see your movies. Buy the tickets right there on the website. MarcusTheaters.com The best movie-going experience in the galaxy. Before we took that last break, we were chatting with cartoonist and editor Glenn Head about his graphic novel, Chartwell Manor. Uh, Very deep stuff, and we asked him, did doing this project and getting it out there, did it bring you any kind of healing or closure on what happened? Um, Yeah, I don't know about closure either. And uh, no, it's not not trite. It's one of the things that comes to mind. If anybody is going to be working out such material and facing such difficult material, what's in it for them besides getting the book out? Do they feel a kind of emotional something, something better as a result of having drawn it, you know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I I think this is like an R. Crumb quote. I think the way he put this was that it's like peeling an onion and that you may maybe you eventually get to the center and maybe you don't. But in the process of peeling that onion, you get closer to a personal truth. Hmm. And uh the personal truth for my money is really what doing comics like this is really about. 
I, I've been telling people lately that I, I don't see comics, the kind of autobiographical memoir comics I'm doing, as a document or a documentary. Um, and what I really love about comics, what I love about the format of the whole genre of, of memoir in it is that it's inherently subjective. You know, if you're shooting a film, you're making a documentary, it's less subjective except insofar as it's edited. You are really capturing reality with that camera. That's objective and that's true. Um, unless you're really, really tweaking it and editing things out and then you're cheating. But what you're filming in a documentary is really true. What you're drawing in a memoir is simply the way you experienced it. And so all those things that you draw, they are truly your story, the story you're telling, as opposed to the true story. And because you're kind of almost going so far as to admit, this is not the true story. This is my story. This is the story that I'm telling you. It's the story that happened to me as I experienced it. So to do that and to have a story that affected you powerfully, as this one did to me, uh, I will hope that it has that effect on others to sort of be in my shoes, so to speak, for the entirety of these 236 pages of what my life experience is, so that you experience what I experienced. Um, that's that's what I'm hoping for in terms of putting it out in the world. In terms of uh, catharsis, I think what it does is free me from feeling like I cannot tell this story, you know, because yeah. there can be a feeling that a story like this is not meant to be told. You're supposed to talk about this in therapy, and that's where you get your catharsis, as opposed to telling it in the graphic novel format where you are turning it on the one hand into truth telling. But you're also attempting to turn it into entertainment because, you know, I'm a storyteller. I'm a comic book artist. I want this story to really read. I want this story to grab you and not let go, you know. So um, you're dealing with it on, on the level, on a certain level, as I say, of entertainment. And you've been drawing comics since you were 14. Uh, you're a student of Art Spiegelman at the School for Visual Art. All this uh, background and, and learning, when this was kind of going on, was there that sense in your mind that I'm going to use my talents, I'm going to tell this story one day? Because you, like you said, there wasn't a language for it back when it was happening to you. It wasn't, it, you know, not, not expressed. It was kind of just swept under the rug in more cases than not, unfortunately. But was that kind of always a little germ in the back of your mind thinking I'm going to use my talents, I'm going to tell my story one day? Or is this just uh, a more recent decision? Um, a more recent decision than when I was at art school, you mean? And right. Dealing with... Yeah. Well, I guess what I'll say is this being at art school and, and, uh, being a student of art Spiegelman was, uh, a truly eye opening experience because it really forced me for the first time to look at comics as an art form and also to look at comics as how would I put it? Something like a piece of working machinery. Um, we looked at comics, we took them apart, we studied why they worked, or in many cases, why they didn't. And uh, in doing that, 
it forced me also to look at comics as something more than a cheap thrill, which was what I was mostly looking at comics for via underground comics. Hmm. And at that time, what was very big, this is like early 80s, what was very big at the time in alternative comics, which were just then calling themselves, I guess, alternative as opposed to underground, was autobiography and the personal this happened to me story. And that's what we were really looking into, really studying. And in looking at those comics, that forced me to think, because I was already doing some of those comics early on when I had him as a teacher, what about doing the bigger story? Like, because say what he was using as a teaching tool was mouse which was not yet released as a graphic novel, but, you know, was, was appearing piecemeal in Raw Magazine. Yeah. Uh, looking at this as, what is the bigger story? What is my bigger story? What would my bigger story be, say, about family, about childhood? Um, I love that Mouse opens with this short chapter of this kid who's been picked on and complaining to his dad that he's been picked on by his friends. And the dad says to him, friends, you get locked in a room with no food for a week. Then you see what friends is. And that's the beginning of it. And it, it opens the story up to this very wide perspective about how people treat each other mm-hmm. and what they do. So, being in that in that school and being in his class and studying all this was really eye-opening about what comics can do, what they're capable of doing, and what I should consider doing with them. So I, I had some very personal stories that I knew I was going to get around to. And so being in that class and, and looking at autobiography, which frankly – had not been of any great interest to me, made me realize that there are real stories there and that at some point I may be able to face working with them and working them out. But what I also learned at that time, albeit unconsciously, was to work with those kinds of stories requires a great deal of chops, a great deal of... uh, time at the drawing table Hmm. so that you can handle working out those kinds of narratives in comics form. Because, you know, what, what I always think of with comics is that it's like learning how to speak Chinese or to learn that language, which you never fully learn. You just keep learning it and it's all built around symbols. Right. And you have to you have to keep going on and learning those symbols to become adept enough to really work with the medium. And that's how I try to look at it. I I try to uh, consider myself a student who's always in the process of learning more. And it's just as well that I wasn't really in any position to do a graphic novel back then. And graphic novels weren't really a big thing yet because I wouldn't have had it in me to do them. You know, yeah, yeah, and again, Chartwell Manor is the graphic novel we're discussing from Fantagraphics. It's out on May twenty fifth. 
I believe you can get it from your local comic book store. And we always recommend, please go support your local comic book store. Uh, especially a lot of them have been hard hit during COVID. So if they're still standing, folks, make sure you get out and tell them you want to pre-order this and uh, get it in your hands. You can also get it probably at bookstores and everything like that. Um, your website, glennohead.com, is that the best way for people to get a hold of you to check out your work and everything? Are you on social media as well? I'm on social media as well. The, the best thing to do is go to Glennohead Comics uh, on Instagram. And uh, yeah, there's, there's a bunch of my stuff there. And yeah, availability about other stuff, but especially about this book. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, again, Chartwell Manor, we'll keep an eye out for that. May 25th. Uh, make sure you check that out. Glennhead, thanks so much for your time today. I greatly appreciate it. Sure, man. Thanks a lot for having me. It was great talking with you. Thanks again to Glennhead. Make sure you check out Chartwell Manor. Grab it wherever books are sold. We always recommend you support your local comic book store or bookstore in the area. Uh, but if you can't find it there, obviously Amazon.com. Uh, get it someplace so you get a hold of this book. Uh, these projects are very important, especially obviously very important to Glenn who lived this event uh, and was able to make art out of it. That's a, a great story and you will make sure you support people like that. We're going to take our next commercial break. We'll come back and chat with composer Stephanie Economou about composing the score for Jupiter's Legacy on Netflix. Please stand by. Hey, this is Jay Muse, and you're listening to Geek to Me Radio. Snooze to the news! Welcome back to Geek to Me Radio. Our premier sponsor for this show, we would not be on the air, we would not be bringing you this show currently here online without our premier sponsor, the City of St. Charles and the Greater St. Charles Convention and Visitors Bureau. If you're brand new and you're hearing this for the first time and you're wondering why a city is sponsoring a online show and a radio show, well, there's a lot going on. We want to make sure we get the word out about all there is to see and do in beautiful St. Charles. If you're from the Greater St. Louis area, maybe you haven't been there for a while, maybe you've not been there at all. Some people in St. Louis... Uh, it's a weird thing, and I say this with great love because I'm guilty as anybody else. You don't want to cross a bridge. <laughs> Sometimes if there's a bridge there, you're like, eh, I'm going to stay in this area. But cross that bridge. Go over the Blanchett Bridge. Go to St. Charles. Check it out. Lots of cool places to shop. Lots of great food to be had in many restaurants. Uh, lots of just fun outdoors. Bike ride the Katy Trail. If you don't have a bike, you can rent a bike from Bike Stop Cafe. Uh, but there's a lot going on. There's always something to see and do in St. Charles. I've been going there, obviously, quite a while, participating in festivals and things like that. And I still find new things that I didn't know about. That's the beauty and charm of St. Charles. And like I said, if you're from outside the St. Louis area, maybe you want to travel. Maybe you want to go someplace new. Maybe 2020 you had to stay at home like a lot of us did. And you want to go out and check out someplace you've never checked out before. You can stay in any place from hotels with world-class accommodations. You can stay in charming little bed and breakfasts. A lot of places to uh, see depending on what level of comfort you want and kind of where you want to be on your vacation status. You can camp for uh, that matters a lot of places there's little rv campgrounds in st charles too a good time will be had by all start with the website check it out and kind of plan your trip from there and that website again discover com. that's discover stcharles.com for an historically good time very pleased to have them as our premier sponsor here on geek to me radio Right now, we've got a brand new guest. Let's get in to that one.
Right now we're joined by composer, uh, just a little bit of everything, violinist, viola player, all these other things she's got under her belt, and we'll talk about all of it. Stephanie Economou, how are you? I'm doing very well, James. How are you? Doing well. Thanks so much for the time today. It's very exciting. I watched, uh, I expected to just watch the first episode of Jupiter's Legacy to kind of get a flavor for uh, the music that you had behind it. And I think I blew through like the first four episodes. It was just, <laughs> it, it's so good. And the music just kind of draws you right into it. Talk a little bit about composing something for uh, the superhero genre is huge right now. Talk a little bit about your mindset approaching the job of composing Jupiter's Legacy. Yeah, well, it's no secret that there's so many superhero narratives out there. So it was important for me to kind of um, interpret this unique, interesting narrative um, through a unique musical lens as well. Um, I didn't listen to, you know, any quote unquote superhero scores leading up to uh, writing the music for Jupiter's Legacy. I didn't really watch too many superhero films or TV series. I really just kind of had a bit of tunnel vision with Jupiter's Legacy, which um, I'm kind of glad I did because there's something so special about this story. It really is a family drama at the core of it. Mm. But, you know, ultimately they are superheroes. So they're facing challenges in their personal relationships, you know, relationships between um, parents and children, relationships with siblings, relationships, um, you know, with close friends. And, you know, because they're heroes, relationships between um, what they do and uh, the state of the world and how what what they do kind of affects um, everyone morally. So it's a really special story. And I wanted the music to be able to kind of expand and contract. We're obviously hopping time periods. We're going from present day back into the 20s and 30s with their origin stories, figuring out who these people were before they were heroes. Um, And, you know, we have a younger generation of superheroes, the children of our first generation of superheroes. So the score needed to not comment on all of these twists and turns. Rather, it needed to be the binding glue for all of these storylines and characters. So my objective starting out was to create themes and melodic profiles for a lot of these characters. So for the Utopian, for example, um, Sheldon's character, played by Josh Duhamel, we you know, he's kind of the the tropey hero, right? He's like what the union, it, all the morals of the union represent. He embodies that stereotypical superhero. Um, so I wanted to write like kind of a stereotypical superhero theme for him, Mm. knowing full well that I was going to kind of subvert that because while he has the image of being, um, you know, the hero, the utopian, so much of what we see him go through is on a very intimate and personal level. Um, There's a lot of fragility in his character. He's really struggling with his relationship with his children, with his wife, with his brother, um, and, and kind of grappling with how his morals fit in, in, in this modern society. Um, so, you know, Sheldon kind of got this, um, theme that's often heard on French horn, uh, on brass, but then in these moments of reflection, it's, you know, on acoustic guitar or piano or a synth, you know? So I wanted to write themes that gave me the ability to kind of show these characters through different lenses, depending on where we were in the story. And Sheldon's theme kind of became the show theme. So it's it's the theme that you sort of hear in the main title and you hear it in lots of places. Um, It's kind of the theme for the union in and of itself. Um, So that got, you know, a lot of time to evolve and develop as the series went on. Um, And then you have, you know, like a character like Chloe or Raikou, who are sort of the outliers, right? They're kind of the rep. 
they're the rebels. They, you know, Chloe doesn't believe in using her powers um, for the quote unquote greater good. Um, she thinks it's all kind of <laughs> um, bull and she sort of just takes a different, a, a path less traveled. Um, she has lots of darkness on her path as well, but it really inspired me to write a theme for her that was different, that set, set apart from all of these other characters. So I sat down not knowing what was going to come out and something that came out, which was rather un unexpected, was um, like a heavy, kind of heavy metal, uh, dark industrial rock thing. Um, and we see that, or we hear that rather, the first time we see her use her powers in her first action sequence. And in episode four, when we see her kind of struggle and battle with drug addiction, it's the same theme, not on, you know, blaring guitars and, and synths, but it's on like a belly keyboard. Um, and it's those same notes, but we sort of, you know, it's on an electric bass sometimes. We, we kind of follow her through her own story and down that path with her through her theme. So there's lots of characters like that. You know, Walter's got a cello theme, um, Grace, Lady Liberty has um, this thing on, on kind of gamelons and bells, um, as well as like this violin harmonic that sort of just follows her around as she's on her own path. Um, yeah, lots of cool themes that I was really glad to be able to establish and develop as the season unfolded. And I think it's interesting, too, because obviously when we're in school, we study music and everything like that. And we study, I, I'll, I'll never forget, I can still hear them in my head, Peter and the Wolf, how you the French horn for Peter, the bassoon for oh, Grandfather. Yeah. And they're, they're, yeah. I love the fact that all the characters have their themes, but the way you lay them out, it's the same thing on different instruments. It kind of adds almost a layer, a, a texture that is kind of not often found, which I think is brilliant. Thank you. I appreciate that. And when you've got all these different characters, how do you set out to, do they, do they show you storyboards? You kind of get to see, obviously you probably don't see the final project before you sit down to compose. You kind of have to go off notes. Obviously, uh, uh, Mark Miller has a, an amazing storytelling ability, but you're working with all these people. Uh, how much collaboration is there before you're turned loose and say, okay, do your thing, Stephanie? We'll take a break. Come right back and chat more with Stephanie Economu. Please stand by. Hey, this is Mark Guggenheim, and you are listening to geek to me Radio. And we're back chatting the rest of this hour with Stephanie Economu, a very talented composer and musician. Talked with her about her work here on uh, Jupiter's Legacy and some of her other projects, and we asked her, how much collaboration is there, uh, how much collaboration and input before she's finally turned loose to do her thing? This was actually a unique experience in that when I was hired um, to start the score, they actually had pretty decent cuts of all eight episodes for the oh, wow. season, which is very, very rare. Um, but I think that actually was a huge advantage for me because we were able to sit down, um, you know, with the showrunner, Sang Kyu Kim, and the producers, James Middleton and Hamid Shaukat, and the editors, and kind of just watch all of the episodes through in a couple chunks. And it was important for them for the approach for the music to be more like a very long feature film as opposed to an episodic season. Mm. Um, and so being able to understand how they were unfolding the narrative, the pace at which they were doing it, um, you know, it's obviously nonlinear. So there was a lot of details and moving parts that was so great for me to be able to understand um, 
before kind of writing a note of music. So that's quite unusual, especially in TV. You know, usually you hire the composer and maybe they're still filming half of the episodes and you sort of just have to get going and you end up chasing your tail a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, But this one wasn't wasn't like that. And I do think that it massively benefited the shape of the score because you know, you have episode seven, the penultimate episode of the season, which is really kind of the big epic journey episode where our original six characters arrive at the island. And um, you have if you haven't gotten there yet, I won't spoil anything, but it's a big, you. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's sort of their big origin episode where we find out how they got their powers. And that was that was a challenging one. I mean, I think that whole episode is about 55 minutes long and there's 52 minutes of score. So very, very musical heavy, music heavy and um, score driven. And that was a really exciting one to do because there were really (laughs) big creative leaps that the score had to make. Um, One of them being the scene where they get their powers, where I chose to um, write this kind of big chorale sort of requiem type choral piece using that main union theme, the utopian theme. Um, and that was something I decided before I had started on the score because I had I had that um, advantage kind of of seeing what the score could be, um, having watched the entire season and, and kind of talking creatively with the producers and the showrunner. So knowing that, I was kind of aiming towards this big pinnacle moment of the entire series. I wanted to make that even more impactful. So I kind of unwound that idea of using a chorale and having this big statement of the theme and I said, what if I kind of tease vocals along the way as we see Sheldon sort of spiral into this madness and seeing these symbols and these coordinates and things? What if there's just kind of this strange vocal sort of motif that keeps appearing as he as he sees all of these patterns and things and starts to put it together? So you'll hear kind of in, in very um, sparse areas, this subtle, it's not super overt, just these subtle experimental vocal layers. Sometimes it's like a strange reverse vocal, like a Latin chant. Um, sometimes it's overtone singing, you know, sometimes it's like strange rhythmic throat vocals. Um, I wanted to sort of make that these little seeds along the way so that by the time we arrive at episode seven and we're there with Sheldon, we're really on that um, kind of spiral with him down the rabbit hole, we we get to this moment where it's actually finally the payoff and we feel like it's been set up, you know, however subtle, however subliminal it was, these vocals have been teasing the idea of this big musical moment with the chorale for that time when they are granted their powers. And talking about the vocal stuff, if I'm not mistaken, uh, you actually took some of the text from Miller's original graphic novel, translated into Latin and incorporated that into the choir vocals, uh, into the theme itself, correct? Yeah, that's correct. I, you know, when I had written the choir piece, I was like, okay, well, they, you know, they need to be singing words of some kind, right? It could be (laughs) oohs and ahs, it could be syllables. um, But I thought, you know, what a great opportunity to kind of bring it all full circle and go back to Millar's original comic series. And I found those scenes that were um, the same as the, the moments that were happening in episode seven on screen, and just took some of those. And because there were already some kind of weird experimental Latin vocals throughout the rest of the season, um, it felt right to kind of have that translated into Latin. So it sort of came full circle. And you did some of the vocal soloist yourself, also violin and viola soloist. So was was that uh, kind of your plan going in? I, I kind of want to do a little bit of the stuff myself, or was it kind of a need by basis? Like, well, someone needs to do this. I think I can handle this part. Kind of how was uh, taking all the, the, the uh, wearing so many hats, I guess, on one project like this? 
Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't something I had planned out from the beginning. I am very much one of those composers who just always has a mic up in my studio. And if I feel the need to just kind of play around and mess with some sounds and if it sticks, that's great. Um, you know, the main vocal profile of the season was recorded by a vocalist named Ari Mason, who's super talented. I recorded some vocals throughout, though I kind of would ref- classify them more as mouth sounds. They're just like, they're not, they're not quite, you know, they're, they're, they're very subtle, kind of just like strange. And sometimes you just need the sound of the human voice to be able to kind of convey that, that type of feeling. Um, so there was just a little bit of me just tossing a mic up and making mouth sounds, but, um, yeah, there's, there's some viola and violin in there. Um, Grace's little violin harmonic motif, um, was, was me on violin. And then there's, um, as you'll hear, as you get further into the season, and um, there's a little like viola sting whenever we see uh, visions of Chester, uh, Sheldon's father. And then that eventually kind of develops and comes to a head in episode six when there's um, a big storm sequence. So there's lots of like really frenetic arpeggiated viola, um, which just kind of I, it was just one of those things where I just picked up the viola and uh, started recording stuff mm. up to what, the sequence that I had. And it just felt like it was the right energy and the right the right tone for the moment. And I come from the strings. I started out on violin in grade school, and then they switched me over to bass. I'm like, well, this is easy. The strings are reverse. Viola, though, with the alto clef, my goodness, that's that's an instrument unto itself. I was never able to get the hang of the viola. Yeah, it's a different ballgame with yeah. the alto clef. <laughs> <laughs> but that's so cool that you, you've had such a hands-on. This has got to be, uh, I would think, because you put so much of yourself into this, this has got to be a source of great pride for you uh, that you've that this it all came together so well. Like I said, I watched the first four episodes and it's just been brilliant. Thank you. That, that really means a lot. I appreciate it. Um, it was, there was a special added challenge with this score in that I wrote the bulk of it, um, while all of Los Angeles was in lockdown. Um, you know, this, these were quarantine days and especially for the choir, it became abundantly clear, um, you know, uh oh, what am I going to do? I have to record a <laughs> choir. Um, and this was back in August and September where there were kind of minimal recording sessions happening at big stages, but no vocals were being recorded because it was just far too risky. Um, so I was like, okay, what do we do? Um, so I called up the choir contractor and he said, listen, I have nine amazing vocalists who can all record themselves from their private home studios. And he was basically like, let's multi-track them six times each so that, you know, you have nine players and then they're all doing six layers each of their part. And then with slightly different variations in their performances. So it kind of feels like there are different, different singers involved. Um, so they all did that in their, you know, (laughs) isolated spaces, um, not having anything to bounce themselves off of except for the track and their headphones. And it really all came together. I was totally blown away at the sound that they could accomplish not singing in the same space and not only just singing alone, but singing Latin, you know, that's an added struggle with, you know, where do I kind of place these syllables and consonances? And, you know, it's just, it's, it's a huge, like, challenge that I really didn't know if it could be met, but I was totally floored at what they came back with. It just sounds like this really big lush ensemble that was sung in the same space. So that's a quarantine recording success story. If I've ever heard one, (laughs) I'd say so. And it's amazing just the the way the technology has evolved. Even in the past five years, we've talked with other um, musicians and certainly voiceover actors on the show who have just stated that the stuff we're doing now couldn't have been done even five years ago. Yeah, it's pretty wild. It really is. And you work on a lot of other great projects. One of the ones that caught my eye, because I'm I'm a gamer, I like video games. Call of Duty is on your IMDb page as your first 
uh, <laughs> entry. And I was, I've never seen booth reader and score recordist. What all was required of you? What did you do for that, that, uh, that to earn those titles? Yeah, so that really was the first project I ever worked on. Um, I worked with the composer Harry Gregson-Williams for many, many years. And um, when I was with him part-time at that point, um, he was working on the cutscenes for Call of Duty Advanced Warfare. And uh, being a booth reader and a score recordist often involves, um, you know, taking the music out of the computer, essentially, and just kind of printing all of those into individual stems, individual layers for the mixer. Mm. And then we went up to, I believe it was Skywalker that we went up to to record that score. Um, so essentially, Harry was on the podium conducting the orchestra, and I was in the booth kind of being a second set of ears, listening to the live orchestra feed with the track, with all of those synth elements and making sure everything's balanced, everything's sounding right, like, oh, you know, the violins were flat in measure 14, that kind of thing. Hmm. Um, so so that's like a big part of what um, lots, lots of composing assistants and apprentices do um, is essentially kind of just really being that extra um, set of ears for recording sessions and things like that. And you worked on a lot of other great projects. Uh, Mulan that just came out last year. We had uh, Marvel 616, which I love those episodes. And each one has its own special stylized theme uh, for each episode. That's great. Whiskey Cavalier, which I feel got cut short. I would have loved to have gotten more (laughs) of that show. But when yeah. you when you look back at all the stuff you've done, do you have what what do you think you've learned the most as you advanced and moved forward and and continued to work in the field? What is the thing that's uh, stayed with you that you learned along the way? I think the biggest thing that I've learned, and especially working with someone like Harry, who is such a versatile, incredible composer. Um, is to just always keep challenging yourself. Um, don't try not to always kind of make the same music over and over again, no matter how tight the deadlines are or how demanding they are of a specific kind of music. Um, just being genuine to yourself and also not like being afraid to just act on impulse. Hmm. That's the one thing about working for Harry was, you know, if he was on a queue for even a few hours, he would, he would realize, you know, okay, I think this really needs a guitar player. And then he would call up George Deering or someone and be like, can you get in here for a recording session in a couple hours? And they'd be like, probably not, but I'll try. And then they always (laughs) ended up there, you know, and it just, he never hesitated. And there was like an energy and an immediacy and urgency to that, which I think really benefits um, just the, the creativity and the collaboration collaborative process of creating scores. And I, I've definitely tried to keep that with me. Um, if I'm struggling at all, or I feel like I'm just trapped in this creative box I've created for myself, I tend to just call those performers and those soloists who I have worked with for years and be like, I don't know what this is. Can you just listen to it and let me know what you think about it? And they'll hear it and be like, oh yeah, I got lots of ideas. And just having someone else breathe life into your music, um, can be enough just to spark that love um, and that inspiration again. So seeing Harry do that, that felt like he was making genuine true music and making decisions about, um, you know, just just the shape of his score that really benefited the, the, the film or the TV show that we were working on. It's interesting you you put it like that because we always hear about authors getting writer's block. You never hear about composer's block, but it sounds like that's kind of occasionally something you'll get stuck on something. I guess that's kind of what it's like, yeah? We've got one more break to take. We're going to do it now. We'll come back and chat more with Stephanie Economo. Please stand by. Hi, this is Greg Weissman, the creator of Gargoyles and co-creator of Young Justice, and you're listening to Geek to Me Radio. Stay well. Stay well. 
welcome back for our final segment here on geek to me radio talking with stephanie economy about jupiter's legacy obviously based on a graphic novel and talking about graphic novel we have a brand new sponsor for the month of may justin's comics we just had him on our radio show with stan bush a couple days ago and if you uh, get a chance we always have those at geeksmeradio.com you can check out our previous shows we had just non talking about shang chi uh the comic book series was out leading into obviously the upcoming marvel comic uh very knowledgeable about comics and the great thing is his shop he's got these great sales going on especially for the month of may whether you visit him online at justinscomics.shop or whether you go in store and check him out right there in st charles uh you can go to the website to find out the exact location and directions if you're kind of unsure where to get to him at and he does online ordering, but you can also go in store and shop. He's got a lot of great items, toys, cards, comics, collectibles, graphic novels, and a great variety of variant covers, which I'm a sucker for a variant cover. And he's got a lot of them. Great sales going on every day. But the month of May, he's doing special sales. If you follow him on social media, he's got some flash sales that he'll tell you about there only. You can get in on those justinscomics.shop is the website. Make sure you check them out. Grab some comics. A local small business like this that we always want to support our local comic book stores, and there's not a better one to lend our support to than Justin's Comics. Justinscomics.shop is the website. Follow them on Twitter and Instagram for those flash sales. You'll be glad you did. Wrapping up our chat with Stephanie Economy, composer and musician, and we were discussing uh, right before we took our last break about Composer's Block. Oh, totally. Um, yeah. And I come from the concert music world as well. Like I went to I went to college for concert music and that was a really, really big problem for me. And I think it came from kind of just sitting alone in a practice room and just staring at the page and being like, I'm so trapped in my own limitations, like mm-hmm. my own mental mental blocks. But in film music, you know, you're you're working with a producer or a director who's challenging um the way that you read a scene or challenging what's possible. And there's something about that that really helps break that block, um, just kind of gets you out of of that those confines. And it's the same. I mean, you know, in film music, you still get it. It still comes. Some some days are better than others. But I definitely find that just being able to get another set of ears on it, especially a really talented performer who you know well, who's not going to judge you too harshly, um, <laughs> that that's really that's really crucial just for opening up those doors again. And with this being such a, a big thing, I, I, I can only assume it's going to do great. I know it's it's as we're recording this, it's not out. By the time people are listening to it, it will have been out. And I think it's going to get a great reaction. I know the buzz on it already from people I've I've talked to has been great. When you look back on this project you've worked on here with Jupiter's Legacy, what is what was your favorite moment of the whole the whole work and the procedure and getting this put out? There were many, many wonderful memories. I think one of the highlights certainly was recording that choir piece. Um, Another highlight is another scene in episode seven where um, one of the challenges that our characters face on the island is... um, you know, they're enclosed in this sort of rock wall and each of them touch the, the wall and a light goes up and I had to kind of craft this sound design. Everybody had a tone and I made it so that it actually used snippets of their motifs and themes that I had developed throughout the season. Um, and so it was kind of like an assortment of sound design crossing the barriers between, um, you know, diegetic and non-diegetic music. Like what is underscore? What is on screen sound? What are the characters hearing in that space? That was a really rewarding one to do. Um, and it's kind of one of those things that I'm pretty sure the audience isn't going to know that like that was a musical intent. Um, But that, you know, it it was still really fun to do. And 
I think honestly, just the people that I got to work with on this were the best. Um, I feel like I developed such a great relationship with our producers and showrunner. And it's really exciting to work on something that everyone really believes in and knows that there's something unique about it. And, you know, to gain their trust, ultimately, like they never pushed me to do anything that didn't feel genuine to me. They really respected my vision. They respected my ideas conceptually. And they pushed pushed me even further. A lot of the time they, they said, go weirder, go more experimental in certain areas. And I thought that was kind of a rare thing. Um, Sometimes you feel like you have to be reined in or someone else's vision really just differs from yours and you kind of just have to somehow compromise. But on this one, they just really trusted um, my artistic vision for it. And I thought that was that was really nice and, and a rare thing. And now with this, uh, it's coming out, it's, uh, you know, all your work is done. People are going to love this. What's next for you? Do you have anything else you can talk about that you're working on now? Yeah, I actually just finished up a DLC for Assassin's Creed Valhalla, which is called, yeah, it's called Siege of Paris. Um, I think it should be coming out this summer, but I don't think there's a date for it quite yet. Um, That one was really interesting um, because apart from my experience on Call of Duty, which I didn't write any music on Call of Duty, um, this was really my first kind of exploration into video game music. So that was an added... um, kind of fun thing to be able to blow the process wide open and really just approach that score in a different way. And the unique thing about the Assassin's Creed franchises is that it's obviously historical. And so I kind of dove into what was the music around the time of Siege of Paris and what kind of instruments were being played. I found out quite quickly that there's very little record of what kind of (laughs) instruments were played then. Um, But I sort of collected um, over over a couple weeks just some random instruments like some old lyres and a VL, which is like one of the first forms of a violin and lots of drums and my my studio is still littered with basically just <laughs> lots of lots of strings attached to boxes and I basically just scratched with bows and just hit on all of this stuff and um with this hyper modern production uh, so it was a really really fun experience being able to do that and try to imagine what the sound of Paris was back then um so it was it was it was creative and colorful experience that sounds like a lot of fun and we can look for that this summer you said at some point and where if people yes. want to keep up with you I know you've got your website uh, which we'll put a link to your website in the show notes it's just your name stephanieeconomu.com and then <laughs> uh, where else can people find you on social media or anything like that Yeah I'm on all the medias um you know all those all those platforms I got Instagram and and Twitter and Facebook and all those things I barely I barely can keep up with all of that but uh <laughs> but but yeah I hope you guys can so yeah <laughs> <laughs> very cool we'll watch for you on that and uh anything else coming down the line please let us know reach out we'd love to have you back on again oh great thanks james absolutely stephanie economy thank you so much for your time have a great rest of the week thank you you too james take care that's gonna do it another show in the books my thanks as always to joey v for making these shows sound as good as they do wouldn't be able to keep this going without him and all of his help Thanks, obviously, to our guest, Glenn Head. Make sure you check out Chartwell Manor, the graphic novel that's out right now. And, of course, our thanks to Stephanie Economou, composer on Jupiter's Legacy and so much more. That's going to do it for us. Check out the website, geek2meradio.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at geek2meradio, facebook.com slash geek2meradio. Give the page a like. And, of course, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Until next week, my friends. It's not in the way you watch I sound be.
Chartwell Manor. Good night. This is James Enstall, host of Geek to Me Radio, and I have a mission for you. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. The next time you want to buy something from Amazon, go to geek2meradio.com first and click our Amazon affiliate link. Simply shop like you normally would, and when you check out, a small percentage will go to supporting the show. So remember, the next time you want to search Amazon for the latest Game of Thrones Blu-ray or Sonic Screwdriver, click through from geek2meradio.com first. This tape will self-destruct in five seconds.